Welcome to episode nine. In my last episode, I was talking about how biographies end. So, of course, in this episode, I have to talk about how biographies begin using William Faulkner as a case. Lots of different ways to begin a biography. Let's begin with Joseph Blotner's two-volume biography, which was published in 1974. This is the sort of bedrock of Faulkner biography. Very long book. Uh, first volume, 900 pages. That's not counting the notes. Same length in that second volume. Here's how he begins. My ancestors came from Inverness, Scotland, William Cuthbert Faulkner once declared, a region, he added, which produced woolen textiles and whiskey. Invernessshire is one of Scotland's largest counties and the royal and large borough of Inverness, a seaport and distributing center, has long been known as the capital of the highlands. Now I'm going to stop right there. You can tell from that kind of introduction, this is going to be a long biography. Um, Blattner felt, I think, obliged as the first uh, biographer of Faulkner. There have been other biographical studies, but this was the first full-fledged biography to do everything, to do a family history, to do historical context. Uh, that's one of the reasons why the book is so long, as well as literary criticism and discussion of how the books developed and so on. He got a lot of criticism for this. Uh, some people thought the biography was unreadable. It might be useful as a reference book, but not a, as a narrative you would actually want to read page after page. Blotner was sensitive to this criticism, and 10 years after the uh, two-volume biography, he, uh, he d updated uh, his biography with a lot of new material and a very different approach. Listen to this approach to the one-volume edition of Blotner's biography. He was a colicky baby. In the heat of the insect-loud September and the October darkness, he would keep his mother awake almost every night. She would rock him steadily, the tiny woman in her kitchen chair. According to family lore, it was a straight chair, and with each forward motion, the front legs would strike the floor with a sharp report that echoed through the open windows. She and her husband had lived in New Albany, Mississippi for almost a year now, but they did not know many people. They were standoffish, thought some of the neighbors, and after hearing the sound again and again, one said, those Faulkner sure are the queerest folks. They chop kindling all night on the kitchen floor. For the whole first year of his life, the baby would wake with the colic and with his small, strong mother would hold him in her arms and rock him. It was as if auguries already hovered around that cradle. Sensitivity, pain, love, and clannishness. Well, now we've got a very different Joseph Blotner. Uh, much more dramatic. Much more uh, of a desire to create a story. Very engaging. And also, in the last words of that paragraph, rather portentous. Stanley Fish wrote a very famous essay about uh, biography, or maybe we should say notorious or even infamous. Essentially a skeptic of biography, because he thought of biography as factitious, artificial, uh, made up. N not that uh, biographers intentionally made up stories, although some have been known to do that. 
but rather factitious in the sense that, well, where do you begin? Where do you end? It is rather arbitrary in a way. The only thing that isn't arbitrary about it, of course, is the person lives and dies, has a beginning and an end. But otherwise, how you choose that beginning, how you choose that end, it's different from one biography to another, even of the same subject, William Faulkner, as I'm about to show. I guess my answer to Stanley Fish is, how could it be otherwise? And why does that make biography particularly factitious? You ask somebody about your uncle, your grandfather, you're going to get different stories about them, most likely, and different opinions and judgments about that person. Does that mean those opinions and judgments don't mean anything at all, that it's all just factitious, one damn thing after another? I don't think so. I think we are trying to shape life even as we live it. Here's Judith Wittenberg, uh, the beginning of her biography of William Faulkner. Near the end of his life, William Faulkner contemplated with awe the impressive array of his fiction. His literary power seemed miraculously to have come to him from some mysterious source. I realized for the first time what amazing gift I had. She's quoting him, of course. Uneducated in every formal sense, without even very literate, let alone literary companions, yet to have made the things I made. I don't know where it came from. I don't know why God or gods or whoever it was selected me to be the vessel. Believe me, this is not humility, false modesty. It is simply amazement. That's from one of his letters. She says, on another occasion, Faulkner expressed the same view of himself as a vessel, a receptacle for ideas that virtually erupted from an unknown origin. I listened to the voices, and when I put down what the voices say, it's right. He told Malcolm Cowley, sometimes I don't like what they say, but I don't change it. This is very much a literary biography, and so it's it's taking that tack. It's 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 looking at how Faulkner viewed his own creation and what the biographer can add to it. Around the same time, this is back in the uh, 1980s, David Minter uh, produced a biography of William Faulkner, and this is how he begins. William Faulkner was born in New Albany, Mississippi, on 25 September 1897 the first child of Maud and Murray Faulkner. Shortly after his birthday, his first birthday, he and his parents moved to Ripley. A few days before he turned five, they moved to Oxford, where he spent the rest of his childhood, all of his youth, and most of his adult life. Near Oxford in the sanatorium, on a hill outside Bahalia, another small Mississippi town, he died in 1962 on July 6th the birthday of the first of the Mississippi Faulkners, his great-grandfather, the old Colonel William Clark Faulkner. So he dies on the day that uh, his great-grandfather, uh, also a literary figure, among other things, dies. And that's the first paragraph. And it gives you sort of the first and the last, the beginning and the end of a life, all together in one little capsule shot. Here's another one. This is by a historian, Stephen Oates, uh, but who's very much given to the dramatic. He begins, As the train roared through the Mississippi countryside, the boy and his two little brothers sat transfixed at the open window of the passenger coach, watching the shadowy forests, the hazy fields of corn and cotton, the occasional farmhouses and barns, all slide backward toward Holly Springs, it was an arduous trip for their mother, a small, prim woman with auburn hair and stern eyes. The coach was oppressively hot. 
and cinder flakes from the locomotive swirled through the open window, sullying the boys' faces and clothes. But Billy, the oldest, had seldom been so excited. Already he had a love for the steam locomotive that rivaled his father's. The sharp burst of its whistle, the hum of its wheels, the throb of the exhaust exploding from its stacks, all thrilled the boy to incandescence. Well, some might call that purple prose. You might also say, where does he get all that stuff? It's such a story. Well, he gets a lot of it from a memoir that uh, Faulkner's brother Murray wrote. Uh, family called him Jack, Jack Faulkner. And he describes that arrival in Oxford and what it was like for those little boys. But was William thrilled to incandescence? How should we know? We don't really know that. Yes, Jack does say the boys were excited. But, um, oh, it's just one of, this, one of those biographers who really likes to soup up his prose and make it a story, even if he is a historian. Uh, here's another option. This is from Fred Carl, who wrote quite a huge biography of Faulkner. From the introduction. When Faulkner, family named Faulkner, it was spelled differently. That's why he repeats it again, F-A-L-K-N-E-R. Uh, he, he changed it, William did, and put the U in it. When he was born in New Albany, Mississippi, on September 25th, 1897, there was still a mythical America, and it was still possible for an individual to wrap himself in that myth. Part of the myth had attached itself to the Faulkner family well before the writer was born. Its violence, its frontier qualities, its efforts to relocate itself as part of the Southern planter aristocracy. But Faulkner also created his own, those famous silences which characterized his public pose were an essential part of that myth-making. They seemed to locate him on some mystical or magical ground where no one else could tread. Faulkner desperately wanted to be a great writer, but he wanted just as desperately to be an epic hero. Both nature and nurture reinforced that willed sense of self. That willed and, you might say, heroic sense of self. I think that's a very good first paragraph. It really captures a lot about Faulkner, his, how the, his demeanor as an older man really derives from his family history and background. And uh, Carl gets it all done in one paragraph. That's pretty good. Fred Carl, that is, not Carl Rollison. We'll be coming to him later. Here's Richard Gray. Um, in 1949, he begins, when he was finally beginning to receive the kind of public recognition he deserved, William Faulkner wrote this to the critic Malcolm Cowley. It is my ambition to be as a private individual abolished and voided from history, leaving it markless, no refuse save the printed books. I wish I had had enough sense to see ahead 30 years ago and, like some of the Elizabethans, not sign them, that is, the books. It is my aim and every effort bent that the sum and history of my life, which in the same sentence is my obit and epitaph too, shall be them both. He made the books and he died. Quote from Faulkner. There are several ways of reading this, Gray says. One, and perhaps the simplest, is to see it as a pose. Faulkner's claim that he either, he, he either was or wanted to be the last private individual on earth could be seen as just that a claim with little or no foundation in actual experience. 
Faulkner played many roles in his life. The effete bohemian aristocrat, the wounded war hero, the farmer, unkempt in body and mind, the red-coated stiff-black huntsman on horseback, and it could be argued without much difficulty that this obsessive, widely proclaimed pursuit of privacy was no more than another change of clothes, a further way of allowing Faulkner to enact his identity, to turn his experiencing self into a performing self. It's very interesting, and it's a very, it's a very critical biography. Uh, it really, he Ray really, you know, pours over the evidence and uh, doesn't simply take Faulkner as, at his word or shows the different contexts in which you can view such a statement. Um, it's a kind of biography a literary critic might write, which is the kind of biography that um, uh, Andre Bicastin wrote shortly before his death and has been translated into English. He begins this way. There is a Faulkner enigma. In 1948, in his preface to Mosquitoes, Raymond Conneau, this is to the French edition, Raymond Conneau noted that of all the American writers, Faulkner is the one who seems the most mysterious. While Sartre, no less intrigued by the man behind the writer, concluded his essay, Sartre's, as follows. That is an essay in one of Faulkner's novels. We need to know him. More than 40 years after Faulkner's death, 700 of his letters are available along with all of his published interviews, testimonials from his family, his friends, his neighbors, and all those who were close to him, plus half a dozen biographies. Over the years, this has been supplemented by a raft of unpublished material, both poetry and prose, most of which dates from the author's youth. However, it is not at all certain that Sartre's prayer has been answered. While we are now more aware of the contours of Faulkner's life and work, we are still in the dark about how a minor anachronistic poet from the Deep South became one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century. And he goes on to talk about the archives and the things that can contribute to a biography. But in a way, it takes, a, in a way, a modest approach to, to biography. There is a kind of mystery or enigma that was a huge leap from the minor poet to um, the novelist and creator of The Sound of the Fury. I try to make that leap, especially by focusing on New Orleans, where Faulkner met writers, especially Sherwood Anderson, and began to think about uh, his own native land. In fact, why don't I get to that right now in my opening, opening paragraphs. This is after the preface to uh, my biography and how I begin. And it, it's, a, it's a biography... It's the opening of a biography that is that is conscious of other biographies. If one of the things I think that's different about my biography, Blake Caston does this a bit, but mine is historiographical in the sense of uh, being very aware of the literature before it, not just the literary criticism about Faulkner and the reviews of his books and so on, but how biographers have approached his story. So, my first chapter, Beginnings, begins this way. Because William Faulkner's characters are obsessed with the past, the same has been said of their author. Biographers dwell in his family history, especially the example of his great-grandfather, the old colonel, William C. Faulkner, I give his dates, 1825 to 1889, who embodied the three major legends of the South, the Cavalier legend about family origins and personal style, the plantation legend about the golden age before the war, 
and the Redeemer's legend about the glorious unseating of the carpetbaggers. Biographers quote young Willies, that's what the early Faulkner was called as a little boy, Willie and then Billy. Biographers quote young Willie's public avowal that he wanted to be a writer like his great-granddaddy, and they have assiduously investigated the old colonel's life, exhuming details that Faulkner may not have known or have cared to examine. When Donald Philip Duclos pressed Faulkner for details, Duclos was writing a biography of Faulkner's great-grandfather. When he pressed Faulkner for details, the novelist suggested the scholar fill out the record with fiction, which is precisely what Faulkner had already done, as Duclos pointed out to him. That is, Colonel Faulkner, in some ways, becomes Colonel Sartorus in, in Faulkner's fiction. I go on to point out, I give myself the privilege of reading a second paragraph, the elements of Faulkner's Southern heritage, and particularly his family history, do not come fully into play until his third novel, Flags in the Dust, published as Sartorus, a truncation that magnifies, sometimes simplifies, and debunks Faulkner family lore. The old colonel figure, John Sartorus, embodies the myth more than William C. Faulkner, the man more townsman than plantation owner, and certainly no cavalier with legions of slaves, was a lawyer and businessman who came out of the war with a fortune how no one knew, although he may have acquired his wealth as a blockade runner after leaving the Confederate Army in 1863. And what did William C. Faulkner, that is the great-grandfather, have to do with Reconstruction? In Flags in the Dust and the Unvanquished, John Sartorus shoots carpetbackers attempting to win an election with black votes. Nothing like this episode occurred in William C. Faulkner's life. William Faulkner carefully selected the fictional values in his great-grandfather's career and scorned the biographer's search for evidence. It's like saying to Duclos, well, why don't you just fill in the gaps? The old colonel was overbearing and had to be big dog. Faulkner said this about his great-grandfather. He built the railroad after the Civil War because he wanted to make a lot of money. That's Faulkner again. This man, this is me, this man was not fit. That is the great-grandfather. This man was not fit for Faulkner's fiction. Money as such does not enter into John Sartorus's calculations. Faulkner's fiction never examines the man too carefully and favors deploying him through the veils of memory and nostalgia. The old colonel, Faulkner calls him, a grasping, pushing stinker. Um, one of his biographers also says he resembled a, a robber baron, exemplifying the social Darwinism of the late 19th century. I begin a third paragraph. Was Faulkner, and I put this in quotation marks, was Faulkner haunted by his great ancestor? That's, in fact, a word that Richard Gray uh, uses. The legend suited him, I say, insofar as it was good material for a story. So I'm trying to do a bit of what Blycasta does, too, is I'm trying to show that the, the, we can learn a lot about the fiction, uh, a lot about the fiction from examining the life, but the the fiction is, it's not even just a distillation of the life. It's often just taking some aspect of the life and making something entirely different out of it.
which I think, uh, to end the, the podcast here, uh, is to say that not only does the biographer have all these choices to make about how to begin or end a book, what evidence to use, what details to leave out, but there's a whole sense of shaping, uh, especially in a literary biography, uh, to get a, get at a sense of how the figure creates his own life, might take elements of, in this case, his great-grandfather's life, but utterly transform them, and in a way, not be interested, because he was a writer of fiction, not that interested in what his great-grandfather actually did, though he couldn't avoid hearing about it uh, from various relatives. So that's a bit of a discussion about how to begin a biography or how biographies begin. Um, I've left out a few biographers, Philip Weinstein, for example, and uh, also uh, Joel Williamson, Jay Perini. Um, they're also, they, I could also have given interesting examples from their beginnings, and I'll, I'll try to work them in to another podcast because they're wealth worth looking at. One of the things that I often say is that the work of biography is, in, is incremental and cumulative. Um, no biographer has the last word. Again, that disturbs some people, uh, and it makes some critics, when they like a biography, call it definitive. Well, it's no such thing, no matter how good the biography is. The answer to one biography, as I always say, is another biography. Thanks for listening.